is the Legacy Standard Bible Translation. Hear now the words of the only living and true God. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. And the sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp. Just as Yahweh had spoken to Moses, thus the sons of Israel did. Thus far the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you tonight and I thank you so much for this wonderful privilege to be here with these fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that we have the opportunity to open up your word and to meditate on the truth that you have here for us tonight. We ask your blessing upon this time. I pray, Lord, that you would use the words that I am to speak tonight for the glory of your great name. I pray that you would build up your saints and teach us this wonderful truth of the cleansing that is offered in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, it is a great privilege to be here with you guys tonight. Um, I am so thankful for the, the kind ministry that you have done uh, through Pastor Taylor in supporting the, the work being done there at Redeeming Grace Reformed Baptist Church. It was in God's kindness and, and, and His providence that I was able to connect with the church there at just the right time. It's been a wonderful blessing to, to my own heart. And um, I know that your, your labor and your efforts and the prayers that you have been praying for us have been bearing fruit. And so we're greatly thankful for you guys, and it's a privilege to be here with you tonight. Um, what I'm going to speak on tonight is the defilement laws. And I know that as I had a few people asking me what I'd be speaking on, and I'd share with them that I'd be speaking on these defilement laws, I got a mixed bag of reactions. Um, some people, you know, didn't really know how to react. I don't know what to expect from a, a kind of message that's focused on this. But if you're anything like me, you, you have a, a, a distinct awareness of, of the shame and, and the guilt and the, the pain that, that sin causes. Um, and it was several years ago that I first heard a message preached on this exact subject. And um, it really brought to light the, the reality of the weight of sin and, and the preciousness of the cleansing of sin that is offered in Jesus Christ. And so I hope that for all of you tonight that this sheds light on an often neglected subject. Um, I hope it's as great a blessing to you as it has been to me. What I'd like to do tonight is examine this text under three different headings. First, I want to look at the context. Then I want to look at the meaning, the meaning of the law. And then finally, I want to look at the fulfillment of the law. Now, in order to examine the context, I want to just kind of give us a, a brief um, walk through of the book of Numbers up to this chapter where we're at, and then also take a look at some of the laws given to us in the book of Leviticus so we can rightly understand 
what's going on here. So start with me by turning to Numbers chapter 1. Numbers chapter 1. You'll recall that God had led his covenant people out of the land of Egypt in the book of Exodus. Uh, Led by Moses, God uh, took them out of the slavery that they were in, and now they're in this place making their way to the promised land that they were to inherit, and they're wandering in the wilderness. And they're one people, the nation of Israel, in several different tribes. And at the very beginning of the book of Numbers, God has his people take a census. And so that whole first chapter is the very first numbering of the people of Israel, hence the name of the book, Numbers. And you'll see there in verse 46 of chapter 1, he he has every male 20 years old and up number themselves except for the tribe of Levi. And the total number of people in the camp of Israel is 600,000. So that's males 20 years and up. We can estimate there's probably roughly 2 million people uh, here wandering in the camp of Israel. Well, then you take a look at chapter 2. In chapter 1, God identifies who his people are. And then in chapter 2, he's telling them very specifically how he wants his camp to be arranged. And he would have it be that at the very center of the camp would be the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And then around the tent of meeting, each tribe would have its specific location. And that's what's covered in chapter 2. So God identifies his people. He identifies then how he wants his people to be arranged. And then immediately after that, he speaks of the priests and Levites in chapter 3. Uh, the, the role of priest plays a very important role in understanding the defilement laws that we're talking about. And they, they played a very important role in the, the, the camp of Israel at this time of this book. They were the mediator between God and man. They served as the go-between between God and his people. So you have God identify his people. You have God arrange his people around the tabernacle. And then you have him identify Who is it going to be that mediates between me and my people? Then he gets more specific in in chapter 4. And there's three specific families in the tribe of Levi that God gives very specific duties to, uh, especially pertaining to the transportation of the tabernacle. So you'll recall, we're wandering through the wilderness. We're going from place to place. We're not permanently settling in one place. And so the tabernacle has to be moved. And God gives specific duties to these three families uh, in the tribe of the Levites in what they are to do in transporting this tabernacle. So we have the Kohathites, and we have the Gershonites, and we have the Merarites. And I want to just look at, we're in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 20, gives us a good picture of how serious this duty was because of who God is. So chapter 4, in verse 20, He's speaking of the duty of the Kohathites, and one of the things that they were to do is to handle the utensils that would be used by the priests when they were to offer up sacrifices. Notice what he says. But they shall not go in to see the holy objects, even for a moment, or they will die. God would have it be that he would identify his people, he'd tell them exactly how he wanted them arranged, He would say exactly who would be going between him and his camp. He would say exactly how he wanted the most holy objects at the center of the tabernacle to be arranged because he is a holy God. 
and even the utensils that would be used in offering sacrifices to him couldn't be looked at directly by this particular family of the Levites. I think that's important for us to get our minds wrapped around just how holy God is. Well, then, after he gives this context in chapter 4, now we finally have where we read tonight, the defilement laws. God has done everything that we've just spoken of in identifying his people and what the, the priests and the Levites are to do. And now he wants to give them this law that pertains directly to the purity of the people. He gives this law of defilement, especially pertaining to three things. Anyone who has leprosy, anyone who has a discharge, and anyone who has come in contact with a dead body. Those three things would make you unclean. They would make you defiled. And if you were defiled, if you were unclean, you were to be sent outside the camp. Outside the camp. Well, now I want us to turn to Leviticus chapter 1. Join me there in Leviticus chapter 1. And this will give us some more context as, as to what these laws would have meant in an Israelite mind. Often, um, I hear people speak about the books of Numbers and Leviticus, and, and usually it's not uh, with very positive words. It's not the most easy book to read. And it's unfortunate that we have not been as well steeped in these books as we ought to be because they would have had such profound meaning to the Israelite people and they would have understood these books very well. So we see in the opening of Leviticus, if you just thumb through those opening chapters, you'll notice right away there's laws pertaining to burnt offerings, chapter 1, grain offerings, chapter 3, peace offerings, uh, Excuse me, uh, grain offerings, chapter 2, peace offerings, chapter 3, sin offerings, chapter 4. God is prescribing to his people specifically how offerings are to be offered up for his name's sake and, and how exactly they are to do that. And he does so for the first six opening chapters of the entire book of Leviticus. It's not until chapter 6 and verse 8 where he pivots from speaking about what the offerings are to look like to now speaking of the duties of, again, the priests. Here is what the priests are to do when offering up sacrifices. Well, starting at chapter 6, we have two full chapters that were specific duties for these priests. Finally, in chapter 8, then Aaron, the high priest, and his sons are consecrated for the duty of the role of high priest. Um, God is taking this all very seriously. This is how I want to be worshipped. This is very specifically how the priests are supposed to minister this duty to me. And now I'm going to very specifically consecrate Aaron and his sons as the high priest for your camp. So God had his two men as the main leaders of Israel, primarily Moses, and then right along with him, Aaron. Very, very important men. Now, all of this finally culminates in chapter 9 of Leviticus. God has given all these orders for how he's supposed to have offerings offered up to him. He's identified who his people are to offer these offerings. And now, in chapter uh, 9 of Leviticus, you have this beautiful ceremony where Aaron finally is then to offer up this sacrifice. And it's this glorious event. And, and they do it rightly. They do it according to the word of God that had been revealed to them. 
And what is the response? Take a look at chapter 9 and starting at verse 23. Leviticus 9, starting at verse 23. This whole ceremony takes place. And then Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. Then they came out and they blessed the people. And the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And all the people saw it and shouted and fell on their faces. God gives all these specific instructions. This is how I want to be worshipped. And when they're rightly followed, God reveals His glory to His people in such a way that they fall on their faces in worship. And you would think, wow, this is just a glorious scene. Why would they want anything other than this? We'll take a look at chapter 10. Immediately after this glorious event where they do things God's way, then Nadab and Abihu come along. Nadab and Abihu being the very sons of Aaron, very prominent men consecrated for the service of the high priesthood. And they come in and they offer strange fire to the Lord. And God um, is very clear in this passage. They are offering worship to God in a way that He had not prescribed. God's response to this is to strike these two men down dead. Okay, so now here's why I've given you all this context to, to fill your minds. You see how seriously God was taking the worship of Himself. You see what those defilement laws, and one of them included what? A dead body. Anyone who had come in contact with a dead body. That dead body directly related in the Israelite mind to defilement. To that which is unclean. And now we've got two dead bodies in the very context of the place of worship of God. Now the very tabernacle has been defiled. What are the people of Israel supposed to do? Well, take a look at the next handful of chapters there in Leviticus. All the next chapters pertain to laws of cleaning, laws of cleansing, uh, clean and unclean animals in chapter 11, uh, purification after childbirth in chapter 12. And then very interestingly, in chapter 13 and 14, we have all these laws of leprosy. Uh, These laws of leprosy. You remember, one of the defilement laws was anybody having leprosy was to be sent outside the camp. They could not remain in the camp. They had to be sent outside. Well, how could could it ever be that someone who is a leper could ever be brought back in? Well, they would have to follow what was prescribed in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. However, um, this would all culminate culminate in uh, chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Leviticus 13, 45 and 46. This is what a leper was supposed to do. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be uncovered and he shall cover his mustache and call out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His place of habitation shall be outside the camp. If he ever wanted to come back inside the camp, he would have to follow the many various laws of purification. 
However, there's one problem. Nowhere in chapters 13 to 14 of Leviticus does it actually tell a man how to become clean. It tells a man what to do once he's already been cleansed. Look at chapter 14 and verse 3. And the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp. Thus the priest shall look. And if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give the command and take two live clean birds, so on and so forth. And then you have the ritual. If the infection has been cleansed of the leper, then the priest can do the ritual of cleansing. It tells you what to do once you've been cleansed, not how to actually be cleansed. Now, I know I just gave you a lot of information, but I promise you this will be important to understand the fullness of what's going on in an Israelite mind when they think through these laws. So I've given you the context. Now I want to I give you the meaning of this law. What, what's really going on here? Turn back with me to Numbers chapter 5, and we'll be sitting here for a little while. So... The meaning of the law is this. God wants absolute purity in his camp. And anybody who had leprosy, anybody who had a bodily discharge, uh, anyone who had come in contact with an unclean body was unpure. They were defiled. They were unclean. They had to go outside the camp. Imagine what obedience to this law would have looked like for an Israelite. I see there's some younger children in here. Let's say you're a mother and father and your 10-year-old son comes into the room and he says, Mommy, Daddy, I've got this mark on my skin. I don't know what it is. And the moment you see it, your heart drops into your stomach because you know that's leprosy and he's unclean. And we must do what is right to obey God and send him outside the camp. This had profound implications for the Israelite people. They understood deeply that this defilement is a very serious thing. There are three meanings to this law. Three meanings. First, a practical meaning. Second, a theological meaning, a reason that points to God. And third, a Christological meaning, a meaning that points to Christ. I want to walk through each of those three meanings. So first, the practical meaning. Practical meaning is this. God was protecting his people. All the laws of God are good. It is always in God's people's best interest to follow God's law. He shows his care for his people in this law by protecting them from the diseases that would have come with leprosy or a discharge or coming in contact with a dead body. The the people of uh, of Israel at this time did not have the same medical capabilities that we have today. And so by giving this law to his people, God was showing his love, his care, his protection for them. There's a very very practical meaning for this. But it goes much, much deeper than that. Second, there's a theological meaning. There's a theological meaning behind this law. 
Now, you remember I talked about the, the Kohathites, and they had the duty of taking care of the utensils in the tabernacle. God is so holy that if they even looked upon those utensils without the great high priests first covering them, they would be struck down dead. God is a holy God. That which is unholy cannot dwell in His presence. Looking at our text, look at verse 3. Numbers chapter 5 and verse 3. You shall send away both male and female. This applies to everybody. You shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. Because God is a holy God, which means He is perfectly pure, that which is unpure, that which is defiled, cannot dwell in His midst. Because something has been defiled, because something has been has become unclean, it must go outside the camp. God is in the camp. That which is unclean cannot also be there. So it must be sent outside the camp. This tells us something. Our rightful position is to be inside the camp, in the presence of God. The very reason why we exist is to worship God. Little children, the reason that you've been created is for the worship and glory of God. That's why you exist. God has created us so that we would draw near unto Him in worship of Him. I love how Scott Annual defines what worship is. He says it's this. Worship is drawing near to commune with God through Christ, in the Spirit, by faith. Our reason for existence and our rightful position is to be inside the camp, drawing near to our Heavenly Father so that we can worship and commune with Him and His people. That's why you exist. But our defilement then separates us from being able to do so. These laws about defilement are not just a picture of leprosy and of a discharge and a picture of coming in contact with a dead body. It's a picture of sin. Sin defiles us. Sin causes us to be unclean. And because of sin, we cannot draw near to the Father. If we come with our own unclean hands, we will not be able to draw near. We belong outside the camp. Well, how then can we draw near? We who have been defiled by sin, how can we draw near? That gives us the third meaning of this law, the Christological meaning. And this is also the third heading, the fulfillment of this law. And I want you to see this, so please turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, and look with me at verse 12. I want to remind you again, the reason I gave you all that context in Leviticus is because this all would have been so 
deeply ingrained in a Jewish mind at the time of Jesus Christ. They were well steeped in the Torah, in understanding these various laws, and so they understood them well. Now, how is it that Christ fulfills this law? Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 12. And it happened that while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Imagine what the reaction would be at this point of all the crowds surrounding Jesus and this man, knowing the defilement laws, knowing that if you had contracted leprosy, you belonged outside the camp. You were supposed to be marching around with your hair shaved and your face covered and pronouncing to everyone, I am unclean. This man is now falling at the feet of Jesus, covered in leprosy, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand. At this point, every Jewish jaw is on the floor. Jesus, what are you doing? He's unclean. If you touch him, you're going to become unclean too. And both of you will belong outside the camp. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. You guys understand the statement that Jesus is making in this action? He is saying in front of all those people, I can do what the law cannot do. I can cleanse you. You remember Leviticus 14, verse 3? It never tells you how to actually be cleansed originally of your defilement. It can only tell you what to do once you've been cleansed. But Jesus comes along and He says, I am willing, be cleansed. And He goes to the defiled man and He touches him and instantly, immediately, the man is cleansed. Notice what else Jesus says. Verse 14. And He directed him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. Jesus is also sending a message to the priests of that day. Not only can He do what the law cannot do in actually cleansing a man, there's a new high priest in town. And He can do what the old priesthood could never do. Jesus is profoundly illustrating that He is the One who can cleanse you of your defilement. And now, as you've been cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be welcomed back inside the camp, back into the presence of God. You say, 
well, that's, that's the law about leprosy. What about the discharge? What about the dead body? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 and verse 40. And as Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he began to plead with him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for twelve years, a hemorrhage would be the exact same as a discharge, same category. A woman who had a discharge for twelve years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I knew that power had gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus cleanses of the discharge. We keep reading at verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be saved. So when he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all crying and lamenting for her, but he said, Stop crying, for she has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise! And her spirit returned, and she stood up immediately. And he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. And her parents were astounded. But he directed them to tell no one what had happened. Jesus shows his power to cleanse the defilement of leprosy. He shows his power to cleanse the defilement of the discharge. And here he shows his power to cleanse over the defilement of coming in contact with a dead body. There is no defilement which Jesus Christ cannot cleanse. Amen? By the way, I think it's important to 
note here, who wrote this book? The Gospel of Luke. What, what was Luke's occupation? He's a physician. He's a doctor. Not only has Jesus displayed to all these people, I can do what the law cannot do. I can do what the old priesthood cannot do. I can also do what the doctors cannot do. Luke is pointing out on full display, this man can do something I never could. This woman had a discharge, a hemorrhage for 12 years, and no one could heal her. The moment she comes in contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, she touches the hem of His garment, and immediately she is cleansed. Now you'd ask me, well, how is this? Who is this man that he can cleanse of defilement? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I always have liked to say that the, the theme of, or one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is better. And there's no other book in the New Testament that, that so clearly ties Old Testament realities into our New Covenant realities. And, and the theme of this book is Jesus is better. He's a better priest. He's a better prophet. He's a better king. He is the author of a better covenant. He is better in every single way. And so you ask me, how can it be that Jesus Christ can cleanse us of our defilement? Hebrews chapter 13 and starting at verse 11. Picking up on that defilement laws and what was to happen, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. 2,000 years ago, on a hill called Golgotha, outside the camp of Jerusalem, there was an offering made for sinners. The once for all offering. Where the very Son of God Himself would go and be tacked to a tree in order to atone for the sins of His people. How can it be that, that Jesus Christ can cleanse his people of their defilement, it's because He was treated like the defiled one so that those who are defiled can be cleansed. He took that defilement on Himself and was brought outside the camp as a sacrifice for sin. And then you ask me, how do we know that this is enough? How do we know? Okay, maybe he fulfilled that. Maybe it was, maybe you're right that, that Jesus Christ was fulfilling that law. But how do we know that he fulfilled it totally? Well, I'm glad you asked. Hebrews chapter 7 
and verse 26, just a few chapters back. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, and what? Undefiled. Holy, innocent, and undefiled. Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus was the once for all sacrifice. He was treated like the defiled one, even though he was holy, innocent, and undefiled. So that all those who look to His his sacrifice and faith can be treated as those who are pure. He was treated as though He had broken the law and belonged outside the camp. So that those who belong outside the camp could be brought near. My friends, this is such an overwhelmingly glorious truth that those who are defiled by sin can be cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ and brought near, near to God to commune with Him, to worship Him in spirit and in truth, to be those who stand now in His presence as totally, utterly, and permanently clean because of what Jesus Christ has done. Hallelujah! So I want to just give three brief applications for you from this message. <clears throat> and application number one, I, I would just say, see the glory of the Word of God in every chapter, in every line, in every book. It, it, it's a great tragedy that we are people who are biblically illiterate in in many cases, and especially when it comes to the first five books of the Bible. When we overlook those truths, we miss out on so much of what the New Testament is trying to teach us. At Redeeming Grace, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, and every single week we are tying it back to the Torah. This was the book that Jesus would have carried around with Him. It's the book that so permeated their cultures, uh, those first five books of the Bible. And so we must be well steeped in them. It is like nails on a chalkboard when I hear some comments that are often made about Leviticus and Numbers. Oh, I never want to spend much time in those books. My friend, knowing those books will so enrich your faith and transform the way that you see the New Testament, it must be known to every one of us the foundation of the Christian faith is the New Testament. Well, the foundation of the New Testament is the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And the foundation of the Gospels is the Old Testament. And the foundation of the Old Testament is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
The foundation of the Torah is the book of Genesis, and the foundation of Genesis is Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's no wonder that that is the most attacked verse in all of Scripture. But we zoom out a little bit from there, and we must see the importance of those first five books of the Bible. I hope that this message has sparked your curiosity to dig deeper into the book of Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Don't overlook those books. Grow in your love and appreciation for this inspired word in every line, in every book. Well then, secondly, of course, the great application for every one of us is to see our defilement and to be cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no defilement that Jesus cannot cleanse you of. You must come to Him. You must repent and trust in Him alone. And He will cleanse you. It was just this past week, I had a, I was daydreaming and, and thought back to something of my past that just causes great shame. I'm sure I'm not the only one who knows that feeling. Sin from previous days that you remember and you think, oh, what have I done? My guilt, my shame. But my friends, there is no defilement, no shame, no guilt that the Lord Jesus forgot to pay for at Calvary for those who would trust in Him. Be cleansed by coming to Him. What is it that most burdens your conscience? What is that secret sin that, that you remember that stays just between you and God that you think, oh, what shame, what regret, what guilt? My friend, bring it to the Lord Jesus and He will cleanse you. You got failure in parenthood. Oh, how I wish I could go back and undo this and that and this. The Lord Jesus Christ can cleanse you. You got sexual sin in your past? Go to Jesus and be cleansed. Failure in marriage? Be cleansed. Spiritual apathy and laziness? Years of wasted time? Be cleansed. There is no defilement that Jesus can't cleanse. And He who has been cleansed then go and sin no more. Live for the glory of the One who delights to cleanse you. This is something, by the way, that no other false religion can offer to you. Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, Roman Catholicism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, every single one of them either ignores the full and complete cleansing offered in Jesus Christ completely, or they want to add something to it. And that is hugely problematic. You see, they'll, they'll say, well, the cleansing in Jesus, that's a good starting point, but there's something more that you've got to do. The Bible says that all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Imagine if you were to sit down and there was a countertop totally clean, totally, perfectly spotless, and it had been washed, and it's totally sanitized, no worry about anything, and you're about to have a meal on that countertop. And somebody comes along and, and says, wait a second, let me clean that for you. And they come along with this 
dirty, nasty, rotten rag, and they wipe the countertop and say, hey, isn't that better? What they've actually done is demoted what was originally there. The cleansing offered in Jesus Christ is enough. True Christianity does not say we need something more than what Jesus Christ offers. True Christianity says this, For my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. I was so greatly enriched as I was scanning through the the hymn book I have at home, how many songs we have that we sing week after week that speak of this cleansing. How about this one? Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you can be today. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to trust His cleansing blood. Just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I proved Him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. Isaiah 1.18, Come, let us reason together, declares the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Go to Jesus and be cleansed. See your defilement and be cleansed. 1 John 3.3 3, Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. Is your hope fixed on Him? Then know, my friend, that you have purified yourself just as He is pure. Finally, third point of application. Take this message of the full and complete cleansing offered in Jesus Christ outside the camp to those who are still in their defilement. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 13. We just read from that text that Jesus would sanctify His people through His own blood and He suffered outside the gate to do so. And then we read in verse 13. So, Let us go out to Him outside the camp bearing His reproach. Let us pick up our cross. Let us bear the reproach of Jesus Christ and go outside the camp. Go to the lowest of the low. Go to the dirtiest of the dirty. Go to the filthiest of the filthy. Go to the most defiled of the defiled. And tell them there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Tomorrow marks day one of 
what our nation has come to call Pride Month. A mass celebration of defilement. What a glorious opportunity for Christians to stand up and stand out and proclaim the gospel message to those who are lost in their defilement. The message that Jesus Christ can cleanse you. My friends, I pray that this message would be one that we bring without fear to stand up and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are trapped in their defilement. I want to close with the doxology from the book of Jude, one of my most favorite in all the Bible. Jude closes his letter saying this in verses 24 and 25. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory. You remember when God revealed His glory in the book of Leviticus? What the people did? They all fell on their faces. What is Jude saying here? To Him who is able to make you stand in the presence of His glory. Well, How can that be? Next word. Blameless. And with great joy, because you've been cleansed. To Him who is able to make you stand in the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forevermore. Amen. Father, we come to You in prayer at the close of our time together. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord but he who has clean hands and a pure heart? And you have cleansed our hands and you have purified our hearts through the blood of your precious Son. And so we give all glory and praise and honor unto you for cleansing our defilement for the glory of your great name. Bless the message that was shared tonight to the hearts of your people. Draw us near to you so that we can commune with you in the presence of your great glory with inexpressible joy. In Jesus' name, amen.